Hi, I'm Mark Groves and welcome to my podcast where we explore human psychology and how it is that us humans connect, what makes us better lovers and partners and friends. We're going to have psychology under the microscope, so please be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to these podcasts so you never miss one, and also visit my website at www.markgroves.tv, like television. Welcome to this episode of the Mark Groves Podcast, where I have special guest, Yenna Farron. I was going to call you Faroon, but I didn't want to do that today. <laughs> Appreciate it. Yeah. The very serious podcast <laughs> that That's we right. have going on today. Right. I've gotten much more professional. Yenna um, mm. Farron is one of my best friends, and she also happens to be a marriage and family therapist in Manhattan. And in Google, I believe you're the number one result, which, you know, they say the best place to hide a dead body is on page two of Google. So you're killing it. <laughs> so I have so much love for this woman that you are about to hear all of the wisdom that pours out of her soul. Amazing writer. She's mindful MFT on Instagram. Um, her and I have done many events together. We are the co producer, makers, creators of Relationships 101, which is a really amazing workshop, which is weird because I just self-taught. It's like I just called myself a guru. It's an amazing <laughs> workshop where we look at all the things that you need to know about relationships. But you, So we're going to talk about that stuff. So welcome. Thank you, Mark. Happy to be here. So yes, happy to be here. This is exciting. I will say more. Let me fluff your ego just a little bit. You are a great podcast producer, and I'm pumped to be on the show. No, but I'm very excited to see where our conversation goes today. So thanks for having me. No problem. I'm excited to finally get you on here. And I want, so in your work as a marriage and family therapist in New York, because part of New York's culture, which really kind of fascinated me when I first met you was, and by the way, guys, I met her on Instagram, super tight game. Since we got introduced because we were writing similar things by one of Vienna's friends. And when I first went to New York and we met, I was really fascinated by New York's culture that there is really sort of this therapy culture. Mm-hmm. which is very different than mm-hmm. other places. You know, when you go to places yeah. like, I don't know, maybe my experience, because I grew up in Calgary, which is kind of like the Texas of Canada, is yeah. like, therapy? Why would no we way. go to that? We're not broken. Yeah, no? yeah. No, it's it's definitely much more received here. A lot of people have their own therapists. A lot of people go to their couple therapy and their individual therapy. So, yeah, I mean, it's something that people... Not not everybody, but a lot of people do speak openly about it. Like people say, yeah, I'm going to dinner or I'm, I'm going to therapy before dinner or going to therapy before getting my nails done or my massage. Right. You know, So it's not something that everybody hides here. There's is less of a stigma attached to it um, than, than maybe in some other places, which is nice because I think that people see the value in therapy and there's you know, there's a confidence about it. Like this is just a part of their overall wellness and that it doesn't mean that there has to be something terribly wrong going on in your life. Which is such the common part of, you know, I, I mean, I usually see in couples where it's like when things, when shit has really hit the fan and they're almost at this place of man, hard to recover from Mm-hmm. That that's when they seek this outside, you know, objective counsel when, you know, and we have really created this thought like, 
why would I need to see you know, like this idea in relationship? And I love that from Eric Fromm, you know, the philosopher and the psychologist who said we like there's no other thing we fail at more in life than love. And yet we don't seek to become experts. Yeah, I think that the research shows that couples come to couple therapy about four years too late. My God. So, you know, it's like, I, it's, it's so important. I do hear people, even it's sort of an extension of what you were just saying, where people um, say like, well, if a couple's coming to couples therapy and they're not even married yet, like, don't you think that, that like says something? And obviously they're, 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 they're insinuating that maybe they ought not to get married. And if they're having problems already pre-marriage, then that should be something that <laughs> tells them to get the heck out of there. When, you know, certainly that, that may be the case where a relationship is, is, is off. But a lot of times people are actually coming in to do preventative work and they're actually taking care of their relationship in a way that, that many people should be. Yeah, it's almost inspiring because we certainly have all known couples who never went to that therapy before their wedding. And everyone's like, man, they should not be getting married. They should have seen a therapist first. So in like when you when you observe couples that are newly getting married, there is, you know, I think there is often a stigma that says you shouldn't be scared when you're getting married. But I was like, mm. man, how are people not scared when they're about to have a kid, when they're about to, mm, mm-hmm. you know, on some level have some fear would seem normal in your experience working with couples? What does that look like for you? And where does the shift come? You're saying like the anticipation of marriage coming in? Yeah. Or? Like we often say yeah. like, well, if you're not super excited, like uh-huh. there's no fear if you walk down the aisle, then you must, mm. not, they must not. Yeah. I mean, I think that people have tons of stories about what happens when you get married, right? We've got this idea that, you know, you have the honeymoon phase and then it's over or that once you get married, you know, the sex is going to drop off the face of the earth or you know, there's so many stories that we have around how a relationship changes once you walk down the aisle and tie the knot. And, you know, those stories are... I mean, whether you, you can say, Hey, this is a true story or a not true story. It's a story that hasn't even happened to you yet. It's not to, you know what I mean? Like it's, it's not to say that there aren't any marriages where sex has, has fallen off once somebody has gotten married. Obviously that's happened before, but it hasn't happened to you yet. So this, this sense that we're sort of subscribing to a story and creating an outcome for ourselves before we even do it is really faulty. And it's, and it's dangerous because it can oftentimes create it. We oftentimes prescribe it for ourselves. And we start yeah. to do the research gathering. How have we disconnected? Why are we not having sex five times a week anymore? And, yeah, you like you know. start typing into Google, like, how many couples stop having sex the night after they get married? <laughs> My God, for a lot of couples, that's when they start. So, well, good for them. But yeah, I'm actually the, curious to type that in and see what <laughs> comes up. Oh. Well, I, I think that's such an interesting aspect, though, of relationship that... You know, you hear about how they work or let's say, you know, I hear a lot of people say, well, I'm not getting married. I've seen how married, and I'm like, just redefine the word. You know, you can define marriage however you want, but it's based on a marriage definition that you have that you do not want it. You know, it's very different to have the systems part of marriage, which is the like getting, you know, whatever it is, the official to say you are married and to go to Mm -hmm. the court and all that versus what are the agreements our relationship has Mm -hmm. And how are we defining our own marriage? You know, and so 
in your experience, do you actually see couples create agreements prior mm-hmm. to walking down the aisle? Mm-hmm. Yeah, like vows absolutely. are pretty, but vows really like till death do us part. Come on. Yeah, yeah, right. I mean, I think that there, there, there can be be there. There is beautiful value in vows. Yeah, there is. You know, there really Except is. For the, I mean, I really loved the one you should obey and honor your man. That was a good one. <laughs> um, <laughs> just, yeah. kidding, just kidding for all those uh-huh. feminists out there. I love you all. Aren't you a feminist? I am. I am. Um, so I, yes. So, the, so the short answer is yes. I, I see people make agreements and I do think, you know, the two, there is a space to, to certainly honor our vows. But I think one of the things that I work on with couples is, uh, the acceptance that really all we have kind of control and understanding of is, is right now, you know, we can think about, you know, this is what I hope to do. I, and, and I, I want to be able to give this to you. And based on the person I am, the based on the person I know myself to be right, my value system, um, how committed I am, how committed I've been in the past, who I am today, like what this part brings forward from this space, this is what I'm telling you that I'm committing to. This is what I'm telling you that I believe. And it's from that space that we're, that we are making these promises. But I think what we've seen happen time and time again is that, is that people change, you know, things happen in a, in life that pivot, uh, relationships and people. And oftentimes the person we once married is, is different. Oftentimes who we are um, when we marry someone is different in 20 years and five years and in 17 years. And what I tell people is good. We ought to be growing, right? I always say the version of who I am today should be the worst version of myself that you see. Oh God, isn't that beautiful? If we're going downhill, then we got some problems. Yeah. But that like, you know, if, if I'm, if I'm doing my part and I'm constantly growing and I'm, I'm moving, then this, this really should be the most unevolved version of myself that you ever get. Right now, granted things happen, right? Traumas happen. Losses happen. There's a lot of stuff that gets thrown our way. It doesn't, it, it doesn't tend to get easier as the years go by. And so the commitment tends to be to growth. I, I, I promise you that I will do my best to check in with myself day in and day out. I promise you to continue to grow. I pro, you know, like those types of promises are ones that I think we can generally, you know, tuck in. And I, I think you were the person who told me about friends of yours who do this kind of biannual. Oh yeah, um, the semi, the G- yeah, or the semi, the G- yeah. AGM, the annual general meeting. That's what they do. The annual general meeting got from her parents. Uh huh. Yeah. It's it's great. I mean, because I think that that's and it, and it can happen more often because that's that's what brings us back to center. Um, this idea of like, okay, how am I doing as a partner? How are we doing as a couple? What are our own individual and relational goals as we move forward here? What did we reach and accomplish this past, these, these past six months? You know, that check-in is so important to maintain because to promise vows, you know, one day and to, to really not check in at all for the rest of time. It's like, it's, it's kind of crazy. You well, know? And, then we're, and then we're shocked that the ships went in different directions, you sure. know, and that's, sure. I mean, you speak to such an important aspect of like, 
It's hard enough to navigate one human life, <laughs> let alone to ma- navigate two and keep them in the same direction in yeah. some sense and, and to maintain our own individuality and our yeah. own dreams and our own purposes and identities mm-hmm. and have the relationship have its own. Yeah. You know, I, well, you let, you let too much air in if you don't come together often mm-hmm. to check yourselves. And that's the problem is like when too much air gets in, you're really living such separate lives and you're not bringing much forward to oftentimes ourselves, but most of the time each other. And so, so much is, is getting internalized and there's so much distress that the couple system is facing. That's not ever being acknowledged and labeled processed through and moved out. And, and that's, you know, when we do that for, for too long, there really can be so much space within the system that it just crashes and burns. One, the, the, just so we don't confuse people, the AGM that I'm talking about is I have some friends who every six months they meet and they write out while well, they meet, they're married, but they, they go for dinner. <laughs> they don't see each other for six months, but yeah. then they see each other. This, this is, is one why night. they're doing so well. Yeah. <laughs> so they, they, they create their own goals separately, not together, um, on write it out. And then they go to dinner and they have this AGM where they go to like a beautiful dinner and they, I love the name they gave it. And then they uh-huh. end each other their goals for the next six months as individuals and as a couple. And then they read each other's goals out loud for the first time as they're reading it, they read it out loud. And then they create a plan to meet those goals the best they can with compromise and all those things so they can navigate together as a couple. So both people's needs are being met and the couple's needs are being met. And it's such a, you're right. I mean, it's such a beautiful ritual and it, uh, you know, one that we, you and I talk about at uh, relationships one-on-one every once in a while is the idea of like checking in, like you were saying, like on a scale of one to 10, like, how am I doing as a partner? Right. And one thing that I found really interesting with that is when I do that with Kai, I'll be like, how am I doing as boyfriend scale one to 10? And it's like, um, and I'm like, oh, shit, you know, it's like, <laughs> I got the, uh-huh. um, and it's like, you're an eight and, mm-hmm. you know, I've probably been less than an eight, but the really amazing part is when she then tells me what would make me a 10, because yeah. I don't know what I don't know. Mm-hmm. You know, and mm-hmm. to be like really open to this feedback for our partners to tell us how to love them and how to be a better partner. And it makes me think of that uh, Harville Hendricks, how he says, instead of asking or saying, you know, I'm not getting what I need from my relationship. It's asking ourselves, what does my relationship need from me? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Which is such a shift. It is. And I think that the space that gets created when you do something like this really sets the it, it, it does set the environment to succeed because a lot of times when people bring certain things forward, their partner isn't actually ready to hear it. And they are either caught off guard or there is a defensiveness that comes forward. And when you have this set in motion, you know that you are receiving information. And it's not that it doesn't sting to hear that you're an eight. Although Mark, I mean, an eight is, is pretty decent. That's not bad. I was like an eight student. So that feels right. I feel like you just doubled that number. Right. It's like, (laughs) I just, what I do is I take the true math and I multiply by two. Uh-huh. Yeah. Cause that doesn't really add up, but no, I mean, I think it's, it's, yes, it doesn't, it doesn't 
necessarily burn any less, but you're prepared and you've agreed to hear this feedback. And in doing so, the message that you send to each other is that this feedback matters to me and is important to me. And I want to do something about this feedback. And that is really, that's a great recipe. You know, that like that really sets um, space for a couple to succeed and, and hear each other, feel listened to, feel heard, feel connected and feel honored. And I feel like it steers the ships the best we can, you know, together. And in that sense, it's like you were saying, the idea that couples come to therapy four years late or even mm-hmm, this mm-hmm. part in relationship where we don't, what was it, label the things? And then what was the term that you use like in the couple when they have conflict? Uh, label, acknowledge. Uh, like you're not even talking about it. You know, it's sort yeah, of like- Yeah, identify, label. Mm-hmm, I, I mean, I, it's so- if. People understand this from a corporate culture perspective, that things that happen in a company affect the corporate culture. And often those things are being talked about by the water cooler or the coffee machine and not by the company. And the same is so true for relationships is that below the below the surface of the relationship is what's the true connection. Mm -hmm. And those little things that we don't talk about and clear you know, they become the the ways we don't text back or we pull away when our partner goes to touch us. Right. You know, and such an important part of the, the intimacy piece is actually feeling fully heard and seen. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's where, it's where we start building up our threshold for negativity, right? So when we do these types of things or what we agree is that whenever there's something that's bothering either one of us, we bring it forward. Right? We're, we're lowering our negativity threshold. And this is something that, again, we talk about, um, in relationships 101, but most, a lot of people believe that if they can brush things off, if they, if they like let the small stuff go, if they don't argue much and they try not to be irritating or nag, that they have a better relationship. And the research shows us that when we drop our negativity threshold, that we don't let the negativity build up. If we drop the negativity threshold and we start labeling and acknowledging what we're experiencing and we move it out and we say like, hey, you know, this bothered me today, or I felt really let down that you didn't show up for my event or, you know, whatever it is, like, then it comes forward, it comes out, the other person is able to hear it, um, yeah, the tricky part is obviously if we're in a dynamic that has a hard time communicating. But if we are in a dynamic where communication is pretty strong, then that negativity is acknowledged, it's honored, and then it's moved out. And it no longer kind of takes up space energetically in our system. Right. What about in those relationships, though, where, you know, like we were saying, what happens when, you you know, you get married at 20 yeah. You know, like, shit, if I got mad, if any of my ex girlfriends are listening, they're like, he never asked me how he was doing as a boyfriend out of 10. Where the fuck was that when we were saying that? You know, uh-huh. and I didn't, because the former version of myself, I am happy to say, is a lesser version than I am today. But <laughs> as we grow and expand, you know, I, I was going to say, I'm blessed to not be married to the person I met at 20, but that's not true. Mm-hmm. What I mean is that. If you marry someone and you're 18 or you're 20 or 25 and now you're 45 or mm-hmm. 60, because, you know, we see divorce rate is going up and people above 55, 60. So, mm-hmm. you know, we have these people who sort of wake up in relationship, mm-hmm. you know, where, you know, we have a lot of followers who comment about that. Like, what do you do when you're 48 or whatever, or you're 32 and you've been in this relationship for 10 years and you're like, wait, I'm not getting my needs met. 
I'm, mm-hmm. I haven't communicated, you know, I, it, I don't communicate. We don't mm-hmm. grow together. I've given up myself, my body, my whatever. Mm-hmm. And now what? Like you have these couples who have, like you were saying, if you don't have a safe space to communicate, how do you create one? How do you create, you know, a ro- mm-hmm. within the relationship? Yeah. I mean, I, I think obviously a, a great place to start is therapy. If you have people who willing participants, because it's a beautiful space to start unpacking some of that. It's a tough knock when you wake up one day or you wake up over a few months or a few years and you're like, holy crap, you know, like this is, this is not where I want to be. But, or, or you feel like there, you have a resistant partner um, uh, yeah. who, who's unwilling to do or to like to meet you where you're asking them to meet you. Which I think is it, a common, you know, it seems to be ever so common. And I think the challenge of being the person on the other side is, you know, hearing, well, I'm not happy with the relationship. I'm not. And all of a sudden they're like, what the fuck? <laughs> like, mm-hmm. I thought you were fine. And mm-hmm. so we get a little pissed off and like, I can't do anything right versus being like, oh, I hear you. And we created this together. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. Well, I mean, hearing that for many people is, is incredibly scary. You're unhappy mm-hmm. might mean that this relationship is going to end. You're unhappy might mean that you've done something wrong. Sorry, I'm saying it like you're unhappy. My partner is unhappy. It might mean that I have done, I'm bad. You know, I've done something wrong. There are stories around what those words mean that we attach to it, right? And Mm -hmm. so it can be incredibly intimidating for someone to hear that and be calm in that space and connected to that space where, where, where work can happen. Because a lot of times when, when confronted with something like that, people, people freak. Well, instead of hearing the content there, which is I'm unhappy and I'm coming to you with the unhappiness because I want to do something about it. I mean, often I think people wake up to the unhappiness and just leave. You know, they like project it onto their partner too. like you made me unhappy because you made this relationship with me. And Mm -hmm. it's like, no, we co-created this. Yeah. You know, and, and I'm sure, you know, there are times when that is truth, especially in relationships where there's abuse or, you know, controlling and all that kind of stuff. So the first step, of course, to be able to even have that conversation in in a space of therapy or coaching would be a great place to unpack that. But then, you know, I guess my next question is then you have this person who's unhappy and not to genderize. I think that's a word I made up, by the way. I want to claim that. (laughs) But, you know, the research shows that women initiate divorce far more than men. Women, I mean, I don't think this goes to, this isn't any mind-blowing research, but women tend to have a much more uh, sensitive barometer to emotional um, disconnection. Sure. And are more like wanting to create cohesiveness and connection and communicate and community. So, you know, I mean, in the research, it shows that by the time a woman initiates the I'm upset or not happy, it takes about two years till she leaves. Mm. And sorry to everyone for the heteronormative research, but it's, it is heteronormative. So it takes about two years to leave. And, you know, in one of the articles I wrote about this, this idea of like when someone says they're unhappy, we often take so long to do the work or we have this one partner who's like, yeah, yeah, I'll book a therapy appointment and then they never yeah, do. Right, right. I've found what's so fascinating is that then in this experience, then men are like, wait, I want to do the work. And by the time the woman is leaving, they're like, oh, fuck. Mm-hmm. And the woman's mm-hmm. like, too late, homie. 
Like I told you this two years ago. Yeah. Well, because a lot of that time, though, in that space, the woman is doing um, so much work to mm-hmm. separate from. Right. So so by the time, you know, like that space, that time, the two years, the two and a half years, it's 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 not time that's just passing by, right? Generally, the person is actually diving into themselves. They might be in their own individual therapy and they are essentially preparing themselves and building up their um, trust in their own resiliency. They're building up their strength. They're working on honoring their voice. They're realizing that they're crashing through narratives that shame them or keep them stuck, right? And listen, I mean, I, I, I think that this is, this is true for you know for any any human right like yeah. any human that's Men feeling something ex- yeah. Uh, yeah anywhere anyone any human who comes forward and is like i'm realizing that i am unhappy and they put this bid out to their partner and their partner doesn't really do anything about it that person generally doesn't just stop there and like fold their arms over and say like, all right, well, they, they didn't want to do anything. So I guess that's that, you know, it might be a little bit of time, but eventually they hop on and they decide to start exploring and they get reflective and maybe they see a therapist or a coach or they talk to friends and family. Maybe they do some journaling, maybe they do some reading. And in that space is this new, this new strengthened version of that human. And as that human strengthens, they get further and further and further away from the individual who's resisting. Yeah, they outgrow and, relationships. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's just it's like yes, they outgrow. Uh, they can outgrow the other person, and it it, it also shifts the um, like one up, one down position. Too. And that's a, that's the same really of the outgrowing, but like one person is above and one person is below. And right now I have my hands up. <laughs> like I'm as if I'm like showing you what I'm talking about. Like a no taller person and a shorter person. Yeah, like a taller person and a shorter person. And that, that dynamic, it, it, it won't work. And oh, sometimes when no. that person in the one down position finally comes to it or realizes that, you know, something is off there, they are crawling out of a hole that's much further down than it was before. And, and that, is what's problematic because the person who's then done a lot of that work is like ready to ready to go and take on the world. And so, you know, if there's any kind of encouragement to the people who are listening, it's, you know, take that seriously. Like if either one, if any partner is ever like sharing vulnerably that something feels off, don't just try to, to like fix it or shift it out quickly. Like really take it seriously because on the other side of the absence of that, can be the ending of a relationship. Mm-hmm. Like the defensiveness and the willing to like want to protect the, mm-hmm. the like identity of the relationship. It causes us to not actually observe what's really happening and hear the person. And then we lose them. And, you know, the reason that was so important to me to communicate to men in, in one way is that like women, you know, in the research has shown, and again, not mind blowing, it seems sort of obvious that when they have like really detrimental or painful news, they tend to share it with their friends mm-hmm. and, and they share it with their partner about 35% of the time. I think the number was somewhere around then, but men tend to share it with their partner about 70, 67, I think percent of the time. And mm-hmm. that shows you that like when they lose their relationship, they often lose their social system, their, their support system. But when women lose their relationship, they don't tend to, they still have a social system. And that's why like, mm-hmm. 
you see men experience much more depression from divorce. They mm -hmm. don't tend to recover as well. They are more likely to get remarried, though, which is kind of fascinating. It's like, I'll just bring this dysfunction to a new relationship, <laughs> you know, without looking at it. And then well, sometimes, though, the men do. I yeah, have yeah, a lot yeah. of men, though, after that, that, that really do come in and they really want to do the work and like figure out like what blocked them. Yeah, I for sure do too. And I think like one response I remember of a friend of mine to that article that I wrote about, like do the work before she leaves, essentially, he was mm -hmm. like, I did the work and she left. Like she, I was her in your article. And I'm like, yeah, I hear you. You know, that's like mm -hmm. very important to show that men are rising from this emotional awareness standpoint and women are not meeting okay. them. And then, you know, I've been very fast. You know, I get quite passionate about this idea that if a woman leaves a relationship, she's seen as empowered. You know, very often, not there is shaming, obviously, and in, in everybody, you know, can be mm -hmm. shamed for getting divorced or leaving. And often, though, like if a man leaves a relationship, the message is a little different. Like he's giving up. He's afraid of commitment. He abandoned his family. You know, the, mm -hmm. the messages can be a little different. And I know that can be all of the shaming tactics we have for preserving relationship and wanting to keep these systems together. It's quite fascinating. Like, from an evolutionary standpoint, we don't want people to break up, mm -hmm. you know, but, mm -hmm. but very, you know, I, even that concept of like, should we stay together for the kids? You yeah. know, this idea of staying in a highly high conflict relationship for kids is not beneficial. Yeah. I mean, I think it's it, the reason though, for, for women leaving and that being kind of an empowered thing is, is really because we, one, we couldn't before, totally. um, literally. And also, and you know, now we have so many women who are, you know, making their own money and, and are, you know, financially capable of, of leaving and standing on their, on their own two feet. But for so many women, you know, prior to, to this, they really couldn't, right? So this idea of actually being able to leave is, you know, is empowering in the sense that for, for so long, like we have, we've, we've been so stuck, you know? Totally, totally. And so to have this freedom to, um, and, and, and this is not true for, for all women, you know, there's, there's a huge privilege here, but so, so even, so women kind of across the board, when a woman does leave, whether or not she can financially support herself or not, like that, that does feel like a big deal because of the fight that we've been fighting for, for a long time. And continue to fight, you know, and yeah. the, I mean, I guess that leads to, we are in these experiences now where like very much so like women can take on so many different roles in relationship and, and whether this is heteronormative or not, even in same sex relationships that we have, like yeah. Just the more masculine partner tends to take on provider role. That's sort of like a socialized role for men. And I often see this, you know, in experience with there's so many like powerful, um, strong women who are taking on this role of provider and mm -hmm. they often attract very feminized men. And they're like, mm -hmm. you know, they're like, why? Why am I mm -hmm. attracting these types of men? And, you know, it's pretty clear from the yeah. outside. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, when we start exploring more of, you know, the kind of like the paradox of women and all of us on this, like kind of sliding continuum, whether you're like, you know, we've talked about this before, whether you're labeling it as like masculinity and femininity. I know some people don't like using that language, but 
you know, if you're, you're using that as like the, the two, two kind of like extremes, right. The, the acceptance that we're really sliding around in that space and these different parts of us are coming forward, given the people who are in front of us, given the work that we're doing, you know, we're turning on and turning off this idea that we have to hold in one place or the other is faulty one. And two, it, uh, it creates a lot of, um, chaos and distress, I think, relationally. Because even this idea of like, oh, like a woman who sits in her masculine more is going to have to, is going to have to attract, if we're, I guess, if we're talking about a heterosexual relationship, is going to have to attract a, a, a man who set, sits in his femininity more, as opposed to here are two individuals, two humans who slide through in these different parts, just m- like merge with each other. Well, you know, I think about my relationship and I would say when I'm like with work, I tend to be much more in my masculine. And, um, like the, like the business side of things, I think like the therapist part of me slides around in that space Mm -hmm. too. like the feminine side will come forward as well. But when it comes to work, it slides forward. But you know, my, my partner is certainly in his masculine a lot too. And I would say that we, we sort of slide around together and, and that works And (laughs) and just because because I would, I would imagine that most people who, who know me might label me as more in my masculine. If they don't know me like super well, they, I don't know. What do you, what do you think? I think that previously that might've been true. You know, yeah. that, that when we look at like, I, I guess what I was getting to is when we have women who are really in these purpose driven, mm-hmm. money driven, providing roles, mm-hmm. a lot of that can be in response to seeing women not have support when they left relationships to take care of themselves. We have messages like never depend on a man, always, you know, make your own money, money. And then we got sure. Beyonce singing, you know, we got a lot of cool messages happening. <laughs> I think if those aren't clarified, that independence is actually walls that guard us from, yeah. you know, and so when, yeah, I mean, I'm, I think I mean, it's in a, your yeah, all the, yeah, I'm sorry, the, all the independent ladies, right? I mean, I think it's different than great having song. a strong, it is a great song, but it's, it is quite different than having a strong sense of self. Totally. Right. And, and there's so many women who I, who I meet and are caught in this space where they're attracting mm-hmm. men who are more feminized. And so when we talk about this space, just so people are understanding, it's like when we say masculine and feminine, we might say what we would traditionally define as masculine, even in a, in a same sex relationship, someone will generally be more one masculine and the other will generally be more feminine. And, and as Vienna was saying, you can deviate and play and flow. Mm-hmm. And one might take a role, you know, this is a lot of David Data's work from uh, the book, The Way of the Superior Man, if anyone wants to learn more on it, that sexual connection requires polarity, that it requires like a pursuer and a pursuee, a humper, a humpy. I don't know. (laughs) That's not the professional term, just so we're clear. So it is interesting, though, that we have like, okay, so we have these feminized men who are pursuing and, you know, the work from, is it, uh, who's the guy who wrote No More Mr. Nice Guys, Robert Glover? Robert Glover. Mm -hmm. This idea that we have, I'm really fascinated by his work because it talks a lot about how for men who are in, who are now, you know, adults, a lot of their fathers were working during patriarchy, right? Mm -hmm. Which which we still see the residue, it's still happening. Don't worry, ladies. And then uh, I'm acknowledging that. And then... And so they were raised by mothers who taught them how to be men. And Mm -hmm. for the first period of their life, they were in school. And I think it's like 95% of teachers are female. So they spent the majority of their early childhood, adult, like young adulthood, 
trying to please women. Mm-hmm. It's such a fascinating, like when you start to look at the socialization of that, where it's like, oh, this is like where nice guys finish last come from. But it's, mm-hmm. you know, he has this great saying that nice guys are actually anything but nice because their kindness always has this sort of like passive manipulation to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's always for an outcome. Yeah, which is kind of crazy because it's like the, you know, I was for sure a doormat, you know, in a lot of ways in my younger relationships, if a girl did something, you know, unkind, I would be like, cool. You know, like, I love being and walked on. Let me just, where are your feet going? Let me just lay down ahead of you. You know, and it was, it's interesting to look back because I actually did see like st- boundaries and standing up for myself. I was actually fearful of being an asshole or fearful of being controlling because mm-hmm. I did, you know, get those messages as a kid growing up in the in the 80s and 90s, good music times, by the way. <laughs> but I, as a child in those times, you know, it was like, I don't want to be like other men. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which, which somehow I got. And I don't I want honestly, to be that. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I also think a lot of women now, because I see a lot of women who have conflict with their mothers. And mm-hmm. so a little bit of what you're saying which I think is true because a lot of the, a lot of the men that I work with, when I, when I, um, we talk a lot about the, their definition of, of masculinity and how they saw their fathers use aggression or, you know, versions of anger that, or control and power, mm-hmm. um, that were really like distasteful for them. And Watching so how they treated their mothers or left their mom. Yeah. yeah or yeah. just like just treating people in general. And, like just their way of being and how a lot of the men that I work with now have a lot of resistance to that. And, and, and in some of the therapy, it's a part of why they have a hard time, like holding ground in their masculinity because they will do everything in their power to lean away from the definition that they have of it. That was very much how I observed men. You know, my father wasn't like that, but but that's how I observed, or at least the message. I mean, my mom is a feminist by many definitions. And it, it, even going and volunteering at a women's shelter, I remember feeling so like sad for them that yeah. they had these men abuse them and hurt them. And, and I never wanted to exhibit because I confused anger mm-hmm. with aggression. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think, I think a lot of women, at least what I'm seeing in my work too, is that a lot of women struggle with the relationship with their mothers because the, at least like generationally speaking, Mm -hmm. right? So if you have, it depends what kind of age range we're talking about here. But a lot of the women that I see, there's so much frustration and anger and resentment directed at mothers who didn't have a voice, who mm-hmm. weren't making their own money, who didn't have the freedom to um, step away or stand up for themselves or like, you know, just all of that. And, you know, obviously being in New York City, I, I do work with a lot of working women, um, women who are who are very bright, who are like just professional young women. And 
they're very strong. And a lot of that strength is from a a space, a story that's like, I want to be nothing like my mother. And it's a tough one for people to like label and say out loud because they still have love for their mother and they, you know, can, can see or understand what the constraints were. Um, and so, you know, a lot of the work is kind of merging, um, the two, but this residual anger of like, why couldn't you do what I like, what you should have been doing, you know? And it is, it is pretty interesting to, to look at the, the images and the messages that, that we saw and received around this and how that's really shaped our story around how I need to be as, you know, whether it's a woman, what, you know, what, how I need to be as a woman, what I'm going to do to protect myself. I'll never be this way. You know, you look back mm-hmm. and you're like, I will never be this well, it's way. It's like the pendulum I need- swings all the way to the other end. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and it's interesting too, because then in that sense, you get, a man might be tested, you know, in a heteronormative again relationship. It's like, if the woman in that space is like, will he bend and break for me? Is he strong enough to actually stand up? You know, when a man can stand in his masculine, when he could say your behavior is actually out of integrity for me, it's not okay. Then that woman who's guarded with all these walls, who's been waiting, you know, for this experience finally gets to be feminine. You know, finally gets to be the little girl Mm -hmm. who gets to soften and, you know, and that's such, it's so interesting to, as a male. Or the grown woman who does. (laughs) Right. And to like be, (laughs) it's interesting to like have observed former versions of myself to be like, holy shit, she was fucking testing me. Mother. Mm -hmm. You know, but we don't, we don't even, I I think a lot of times we don't even know that we're doing the testing, you know, and like I can that has totally happened between Connor and I, and he will, you know, he, he is, he's the first person to, you know, kind of call me on that and then kind of like knock me off of it and sort of put me back into that space, you know, where I'm like, Oh, right. Okay. Yeah. Uh-huh. Well, where you find and I don't even safe. consciously. Yeah. And it, it's, it's really like the first person to ever fully drop me in where I've been able to like, really meet my femininity, um, in ways that I had, I had never met before. And it's, it is quite startling and it's interesting because you don't realize like I, you know, I, I, it wasn't in my conscious mind, the test that I was putting forward, but I was, (laughs) and it's like, it is that part of the self that's like, all right, what are you going to do with this? Huh? Like, what are you going to do about this? If I push (laughs) this, you know, (laughs) are you going to let me get away with this? Like other nice guys have done. And you know, it's, it's so fascinating to observe and watch and be part of not your relationship Uh, only, but like all relationships, including mine, where once I learned that the moment you sell out yourself, so whatever the masculine Mm -hmm. partner, you know, doesn't matter, man or woman, but whatever Mm -hmm. it, whenever you sell out yourself, your purpose, your integrity for your partner, you lose them. Yeah. You know, like this idea, like, is he or she, whatever, going to stand strong enough in her truth mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that if we are ever tested together, he will yeah. or she will protect me. She will be stronger mm-hmm. than my bullshit. 
Which, man, when I first read that, I was like, I remember reading that in David Ada's work. Like, she doesn't want to be the most important thing in your life. Thing, most important person. And man, what a shift that was. I was like, oh, God, I've had it. I was like, where was this book when I was 20? (laughs) Uh, You know? Uh But but it's so beautiful to know that we can learn this Mm -hmm. stuff. And instead of shaming the 20-year-old version of me, you know, who got walked on to now be, have such compassion for our old selves and to say, I see you. And like, I recognize that I didn't know it then, but hell yeah, I'm going to input that shit today. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, to like see relationship, to see also when we're testing people and to really own that test, you know, like when you got called out on that shit, were you like, Oh damn. I mean, how can you, can you catch yourself when you're testing ahead of time now? Um, I'm not sure that I really do it anymore or I haven't in a long time, you know, cause I think it's, I think that once you experience it and I think I poked a bit in the beginning uh, more, but once you experience it, like the trust does get built. I imagine that like, if the trust suffers at some point, that part probably will come out again. But right now, you know, the, the trust is, is so strong that I don't think that part of me feels the need to, to test. So, so no, I, I haven't seen that part come forward in a while. Which is good. That's yeah. nice. You get to relax and, and just chill out. And it, I think you were saying this, like it does, it really does go both ways. Like standing firmly where our boundaries are, like, mm-hmm. you know, he, he would do the same thing and I would catch it immediately and be like, no, <laughs> you know? And it's like that, like that doesn't work for me or that doesn't fly for me. And in that space, it's like, okay, this woman means business, you know, like, okay, I'm not going to be able to get away with X or I'm not, you know? And that I think is like, obviously we are all accountable for ourselves. And this is not about like, Hey, my partner's my accountability meter. And that's great. You know, <laughs> totally. no, we have, we, we do have to own ourselves, but there are parts of us that sometimes become, you know, unhinged and they become reactive and they're pushing for something and they are seeking for some type of protection. And those parts, like they test that, that other part of the system. And when it's like, oh yeah, this person is so grounded, so in themselves, they know exactly what they want and need. They know where the boundary is. They don't have a problem voicing it and they will certainly push it back and there's no space and room for it. Okay. That's it, because that creates a ton of safety. Uh, and that's what it's all about, is being able to feel safe and secure to be ourselves, to grow, to make mistakes. And, yeah. and on my experience with Kai, too, and she calls me out on stuff, I'm kind of like, hell yeah. You know, there's like <laughs> a part of me yeah. that's like, I wouldn't have known had I not been called out. And it's mm-hmm. this beautiful mirror, you know, and that's why relationships, you might think we, we might think we have our shit together and then you fall in love and you're like, oh, I didn't wait. <laughs> yeah, there's some parts that we can't see, you know, and, mm-hmm. and to have a partnership where it is invited to say, hold me to my highest self, make me yeah. a better person by inviting me to that space, which I agree to step into. And mm-hmm. I would have never known that if I could don't get and boundaries. And when someone calls you out, that shit is sexy. Mm-hmm. I don't know. But as like mm-hmm. aphrodisiac. It's like, Mm -hmm. you stop doing that. I'm like, start doing that. You know what I'm saying? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Sure. (laughs) (laughs) Sure. Yep. Um, Well, thank you so much for being on this podcast and for sharing your wonderful knowledge. I will for sure be having you back on here. Just FYI, that'll have you back. Great. And uh, how can people find you? 
Um, yeah, on Instagram, you can find me on at mindful MFT as in marriage family therapy. And my website is New York couplescounseling.com. And you're also on Facebook under mindful marriage and family therapy, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, same with, same with Twitter, but most of the, yeah, most of the stuff goes up onto Instagram and, um, some articles on on facebook too but Her if you go it is phenomenal let me tell you thanks it's true well, thank you thank you cool um, well, thanks for having me appreciate it yeah Thanks so much for tuning into this episode of the podcast. If you really enjoyed this, please consider sharing the episode with your friends. And if not, just sharing the podcast itself because everybody is interested in relationships, whether they admit it or not. So you'll be doing them a favor. I would love your feedback. You can just head to my website, markgroves.tv, like television, to leave a comment for the podcast. Join me next time as we find out what it is that makes humans amazing lovers. <laughs>